Well, good morning and welcome back to X-Ray. You know, we're doing something kind of interesting this week because as Luke is examining the life of Christ, today he's going to examine the life of one of Christ's relatives. And I think that's kind of fitting because as we come into this holiday season, probably even later this week, a lot of us are going to be spending time with our own relatives. So this morning we're going to spend some time with a relative of Jesus, and I think, I always forget how this works, but if Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, I think that makes John the Baptist Jesus, I don't think so. I think it's his first cousin once removed. I think that's how the generations work. I I could be wrong. It doesn't matter. We're going to study his life today anyway. (laughs) And here's what's kind of interesting about this, because if you remember a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist was like a, a miracle baby. Right, and, and everybody around him knew his family. This was a prominent birth, and they were all waiting, right? They were asking, what kind of child is this going to be? When he grows up, what is he going to do? And, you know, I don't know if they knew the prophecy that had been spoken over him, but they all wanted to see what was going to come of this John who was born to Elizabeth and Zacharias. But now he's been living in the wilderness for some time, and here finally... John's all grown up, probably about 30, coming out of the wilderness to begin his ministry, and everybody's waiting to see what that is going to look like. And so John does something that we're going to look at this morning that is is really unique to John. He, He was given a specific role in his moment, in his point in time, in his life related to Jesus, but I also think it sets a pattern for us that we can follow, because John was going to prepare for Jesus and point to Jesus. He was going to prepare the way, to prepare hearts for Jesus and point people to Jesus. And he does that in a unique moment in time, but we're going to actually look at three, four questions this morning that I think help us to realize that we have an opportunity to do the same thing. And three of those questions are very similar. One of them is kind of different, but, but we have to take that one first. Because the way we answer the first question determines whether the other questions are even worth asking. And the first question is this. Can I trust the Bible as history? Right? If the answer to that is no, then we can actually end early today. We didn't need to sing and we can all go home. <laughs> you can start uh, packing for your Thanksgiving trip or something. But... I'll suggest to you that we actually have a pretty good answer for that question and that Luke wants to give it to us. And so we've come as far as Luke chapter 3, and in verse 1, you see he starts this part this way. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. That's a lot of names, right? Now, how many of you, if I put you on the spot right now, could name all of the U.S. presidents and in order? I can't, (laughs) right? That's kind of the moment that we're having here. But the reason that Luke gives us all these names, all these rulers, is because that every single one of them narrows down the moment in time and the place in time that John is doing his ministry. The reason for that is because Luke knows that he's dealing with the supernatural. But he does not believe that supernatural means impossible. And so he is intentionally grounding this moment in real history... Because it is real history. You think about a story like this. It's not enough for us to say, 
that there's a lot of things in here that aren't really true, but hey, at least, you know, it's still a good story. Right? I don't know about you, but every time I go see a movie and that black screen comes up at the beginning with the white words based on a true story, immediately in my head that says, don't believe anything you see. <laughs> right? Because you don't know which part is the true story and which part is just based on a true story. In fact, I hope I don't ruin this movie for you, but my wife picked up a book written by the real Maria von Trapp, whose life The Sound of Music was based on. I didn't even know she was a real person, but here she is on the right side of the screen uh, talking to Julie Andrews on the set of The Sound of Music. But they actually based that movie off of a book that she wrote about her own life. Now, turns out the movie is based on a true story. Did you know? You ready for this? Maria did not love Captain Von Trapp when they got married. I'm just telling you what's in the book. (laughs) Did you know that there are mountains all over Austria, but to climb over the mountain that they actually live next to would lead them right into Nazi Germany? (laughs) Hmm. But you know what? That's not going to ruin the movie for you. They did fall in love later as their marriage grew, so that's good news, (laughs) right? You know, but we back up from that and we say, you know what? It's just a movie and it's still a good story. So even if it's like set in a historical time and they didn't get all the things right, that's okay. But when I pick up this book, look, if, if I'm supposed to base my life on this thing, if this is supposed to change the way that I treat people around me, if my eternity depends on this, I want more than based on a true story. I want to know that this is legit, that this is real, and that's why Luke is giving us these dates. In fact, there are many things in this book that people have said you know, that didn't really happen, or that, that couldn't be true. And one of those examples is Pontius Pilate. When we see that name, for literally hundreds and even almost 2,000 years, people saw that name and said, well, there's a perfect example. We have no record of anybody named Pontius Pilate ever being in charge in Judea. And so the Bible isn't exactly history, but it's still a good story. Until 1961, we find the Pilate Stone. And this has become a huge one. And you actually see that the top line says Tiberium. That, that's Tiberius, who's also mentioned here. And the next line, we have Tias Pilatus. Pontius Pilatus. That's Pontius Pilate. And so in 1961, scholars start writing sentences like, Until now, we had no evidence that there was ever a man named Pontius Pilate in charge in Judea. Well, Luke would argue that we've actually had evidence for about 1,930 years before we ever found this stone. So this can be corroborating evidence, right? This can back it up. But Luke is giving this to us because then we know we can go look it up, we can follow the facts, and we can find out that we can trust the Bible as history. Now with that question answered, the rest of our questions this morning become a little bit more important because the next question is this. Is my heart prepared for Jesus? If that's what John was here to do, if that's what we want to consider this morning, then how do we answer that question? How do you answer that question? This is what that looked like for John, starting in verse 3. It says that he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We'll unpack that in a moment. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying... 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is one of the cool things about John. John was a prophet and he fulfilled a prophecy. These words were written about him hundreds of years before his own birth, before his own ministry, but he is the one who literally came out of the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. That's what his own father prophesied over him when he held just little Johnny Baptist, when he was just a baby, and said, you will be called prophet of the highest because you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. And the way that he does that is by preaching this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So let's take those words, baptism, repentance, and remission. We want to make sure we understand those, and let's actually do it in reverse order. Because one thing that can help us unpack that a little bit is to, to, to slow down how we read it. To read it as a baptism of repentance and a repentance for remission of sins. You see, remission of sins, we heard that phrase a couple of weeks ago. And, and all of these, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, how many times do you use these words in like everyday language? How many times did you say, oh, I'm just so thankful that I've had a repentance for the remission of sins in my life? Probably not this week, right? <laughs> well, now you can. But what that means is that's the, that's the picture of exactly what Zacharias spoke over John was his purpose in life. He said back in Luke chapter 1 that John's purpose was to give knowledge of salvation to God's people by the remission of their sins. Not by the law, not by their lineage, by the remission of their sins. This idea that sin, all of the things that we have done wrong, all of the things that we will do wrong, all of the ways that we go against God's design for our lives, that we disobey God, that we rebel against him and it hurts us, it hurts our relationship with God and it hurts people around us. All of the ways that we have failed our own standards and even more so failed God's can be forgiven, can be taken away. The remission of sins is possible. And one was coming who alone could do that work. And John is here to prepare his way. That salvation to God's people by the remission of their sins, how? Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring, that's Jesus, from on high has visited us. You see, so the first part of his message is that remission of sins is possible. And to prepare people for the one who can do that, well, then we talk about repentance. Now, if you've heard that word unpacked before, it's a, it's a physical action, literally meaning to turn around, to turn away. Right? This is the idea that if I'm living my life the way I want to live my life, if I'm doing what I want to do, if, if my life is centered around me and my goals and my desires, then I have this moment where I realize... My desires lead me to places I don't really want to go. That, that we realize that living life my way is the reason that all of those sinful things begin to happen that hurt me and hurt others and break life down. 
that these are the things that steal my peace and steal my joy and, and rob me of patience. And repentance is the moment that I realize that I am inadequate to fix any of that. That I am inadequate to save myself. That I am inadequate to make myself right with God. But it's the moment that I say, I want to turn away from those things. I want to turn to something better. I want to follow God's way. I don't even know if I know what that means yet, but I know it's not this. And we turn. Now listen, that's a hard moment. In fact, a lot of times it's hard to even recognize that the things that we're doing or the way that we're thinking might be something that we need to repent of. But when we have that moment, when we turn towards God, we say, I want to be identified with him. I want to live his way. Well, that's where John begins preaching baptism then. That the baptism was something that John used for people to identify that they wanted to follow God. And so this isn't a a works salvation. It's not a baptism that saves us, but it's a baptism that represents the salvation that is already done. That it characterizes the repentance that we've experienced. You're going to hear more next week about the details of how John might have done that or where he might have picked up that tradition. But this is a unique moment because for us, as followers of Christ today, we celebrate baptism as a response to salvation that has happened because Jesus has come into our lives, right? For John, Jesus wasn't quite on the scene yet. He's preparing the way for him. And so this baptism was a little bit different in that it signified people who wanted to turn towards God's way because through their repentance, their hearts were now ready for Jesus to come and, and do some work in their lives. And so I think as we ask that question, is my heart prepared for Jesus? That's the thing that does connect with what John was doing is that it's a moment of repentance. That when I'm willing to say to myself, as painful as it is, God, I realize this is the wrong stuff. And God, I want something better. That repentance is what characterizes us when we are ready, when our hearts are prepared for Jesus. And so that's how John was preparing the way. So, what would happen if people heard John's message and they wanted to buy in. Like if everybody who heard John, who'd been waiting for him to speak, who knew that this was that that miracle child, he's been in the wilderness, what's he going to say? When they heard his message, if they really got it, how would they respond? Well, they'd come to be baptized, right? John must love that. Watch what happens in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, multitudes, man, things are going well. Hundreds, even thousands of people saying, John, we're in. Baptize us. He he must say, just, he must be so excited. Let's let's see what he says. Stop reading ahead. (laughs) Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Okay, um, so I thought you did. Isn't that why we're here? Aren't, aren't you telling us that we need salvation? Isn't, weren't you the one who said? Well, watch how he continues. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, I know. This is the part we don't like to read. Right? This is the part we want to say, you know, just kind of skip it. Let's keep going. Turn the page. Right? But there's a reality here. You realize, if John's mission is to give knowledge of salvation to God's people by the remission of their sins, that means first they need knowledge of their sins. Right? That first we need to recognize that there is a holy God and every single one of us has sinned against him. Now, I don't know about you, but that hurts. That's hard to own. That can be really painful to think about. And so when we hear this, we don't want this. Right? He, he's telling people, they think they are God's people because they are Jewish. And certainly God has worked through Israel throughout history and he's not done with them yet. But for anyone to say... Hey, I don't want to hear about this sin stuff, John. I'm one of God's people. I am sure that I will be saved. He's telling them, listen, you are not saved by keeping the law. You are not saved by your lineage. The only thing that you will be saved by is the Lord, and that is Jesus Christ who is to come. Right? That they need the remission of their sins. That they need all of their mistakes, all of their bad habits, all of their failures, all of their regrets to be taken away. And it can be. And so he gives them this picture that the axe is at the root of this family tree of Abraham. But notice, it has not been chopped down yet. In a few moments, speaking about Jesus in verse 17, we'll get there. He says that that. The Messiah's winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to bring the wheat to himself, but the chaff is going into unquenchable fire. But it hasn't been blown in there yet. So why does he call them a brood of vipers? It sounds like they're responding to his message. Well, here's why I think he's saying that. A few weeks ago, we actually found a snake in our basement. It was not a viper, (laughs) fortunately. It was not even poisonous, fortunately. And I apologize to my wife because she doesn't want to remember this right now. (laughs) It was just a little one, just a baby. But here's what happened. The kids find the snake. I come down to the basement and I'm thinking, you know what, if possible, I'd rather not kill this thing. I'd rather help the thing and just get it back out to the woods where it can live a happy life by itself and not in our house. And so I approach the snake. You know what the snake does? Run away. You brood of vipers, why do you flee? Okay, so I got to get the snake out of here. I I don't want to hurt it. So I I come a little closer and the snake runs a little further away. It just keeps backing up. It keeps backing up. Thinking, I don't know how to explain to this thing that I'm just, I'm just trying to help. (laughs) Things can certainly get worse if the, if the snake wants it to. And as I thought about that, and I thought about this passage, I, I think what John is trying to warn them against is that some of them, when they hear the message, the message is really that, That God is going to punish sin. 
He is a holy God and he will be just. And when we think about ourselves, we want to say, please don't, please don't, please don't. But when we think about the world around us, we say, man, I actually, I hope that's true. You know, that all of, all of the lies, all of the murder, all of the, all of the resentment, all of the arguing, all of the hatred, all of these things in the world will be done away with. We want that. We crave it. And God is a holy and just God, and he must punish sin. But the good news that comes here, the message that he's giving us, is that there is salvation from that. And he comes to us to tell us, I'd like to help you. And I think too many times we're like a little eastern milk snake in the basement. And we just keep running away. We just keep running away. And God tries to come closer and we run away because we're afraid of what God might do. You may remember last week we read from Isaiah 55, verse 6, which says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't run away. It can be scary. I might even say it will be scary. It can be painful. Repentance is not an easy thing. But listen to the very next verse, Isaiah 55, 7 let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That is good news. In fact, I, I had a, a situation like this in my own life where really this passage kind of hit home for me and, and just tied right into Isaiah 55 like that. And, you know, we've probably all had these moments, but one that I, I think I might have shared with you guys before, but, but a few years ago, I had to deal with the fact that I had an anger problem. And that was something that, you know, oh, it's my personality. Oh, I'm just a passionate person. Oh, well, well I was angry because, you know, I always, always had one of those reasons. And so then every time one of these moments would come up, you know, the kids drive you crazy, there's tension with my wife or whatever, and my voice elevates, and I start shouting, and things get ugly, and then by the end of it, well, you know, I wouldn't have got so angry if. You know, there's always a justification for that. Until one day, I had to own it. You know, I had to realize it, it, that it was breaking my wife's heart and realizing that it broke her heart that we would fight this way broke my heart and I had to realize this is not just who I am it's not just a thing that happens sometimes it's it was sin that hurts but if I confess my sin he is faithful and just and he'll forgive my sin but then repentance says I don't want to do that anymore, right? I turn away from that, right? That it's got to be, it's got to be different, that, that this sin, I can leave that behind. And I want to go God's way instead. And I think that there's so much joy that comes out of that, as painful as that moment is, when I realize the depth of my sin, when I come face to face with who I can really be in my darkest moments, 
I don't know about you, but, but I almost slip into despair until this book reminds me that when I find the depth of my sin, I also find the depth of his love. That in his tender mercy, he would send the day spring from on high to bring the remission of sins. Look, we all have our own temptations. We all have our own lusts. We all have our own places that we don't want to admit that this is a bigger problem than, it, than we think it is. I don't know what that is for you. I know you can think of that moment. And I know that it can be painful. Can I just tell you there is joy in repentance? As painful as it is because of the fruit that comes out of it. John's words to us are to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And so the people that are around him then ask this question. This is our next question, and I think that we can ask this exact thing. I love this. You pull the words right out of here. Verse 10, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Right, instead of running away, if we're not supposed to flee, instead of flight, well, what is that fruit? Right, John says, you've got to want more than just the the get out of hell free card. Don't just try to run away from the wrath. There's so much better than that. We can bear fruit worthy of repentance. And so look at how he answers them. Verse 11, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Right? Generosity. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, I love that he brings up the tax collectors and the soldiers, because, like, everybody knows they're sinners, right? The tax collectors were known crooks. The soldiers were, were like the mafia. They would come and knock on your door. Hey, how are things going around the neighborhood? Everything feels safe? Crack those knuckles. You want to stay safe, don't you? I could probably make sure that things stay safe around here. It was extortion. And so they come to John and say, okay, so if we're not just going to run away, if we're going to repent, what does that that actually look like? What does that fruit look like? What should come out of us instead? And, And this is what I love about it. Every word that John gives them basically boils down to stop thinking about yourself, go love others. Right? None of them, he's, he doesn't tell the tax collectors, quit your job. He doesn't tell, tell the soldiers, quit your job. Essentially, he says, but next time, do it differently. Next time, do it in a way that loves other people. You got two tunics, give one away. You've been ripping people off, stop it. <laughs> right? Soldiers, don't lord this thing over people anymore. I mean, can you imagine the difference in that moment when the soldier knocks on the door again? And he says, how are things going? Everything's safe in the neighborhood? Great. Well, have a, have a good day. Well, that was different. What changed? A heart prepared for Jesus. Repentance that lets God start working. And that bears different fruit. Now, you've got to understand this. All of this is packaged in grace. Right? We know that John's mission starts with the idea of remission of sins, right? That sin can be taken away because of God's tender mercy. Not by anything we do. So when they ask this question, what shall we do? It's not, what shall we do to earn salvation? It's, 
hey, if I'm leaving that behind, if I'm going this way instead, what does that look like? How do I live now? What is the fruit of repentance because God is taking away my sin? And so I want you to ask that same question. Because I think this is where the joy of repentance comes in. I know it is for me, just just from personal experience. It's because repentance is more than just stop it. That may be the first part. Right? When I was dealing with my anger, it was like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how many places I was acting like this. And it's hard. It takes a lot of self-control. It takes a lot of perseverance. It takes a lot of talking to my mentor and saying, oh, I went down like this today. I, help me think through this. And so the first layer is pretty much stop it. But then it's like, now how do I bear fruit? What do I do next time? How does that look different? Next time that argument comes up. Next time that tension happens. And you can imagine with another person, when that argument begins, and my voice goes lower instead of higher. You know, you begin to speak words of encouragement instead. You begin to bring patience, peace, instead of elevating things. Oh, that feels different. Hey, that's kind of, this is really, it's possible. This really works. God wasn't kidding. The kind of healing that you begin to see, the kind of joy that you begin to experience. And look, the other fun thing about this is that it's not just a one-time thing, right? There, there are moments where that hits you, and maybe it's for the first time ever, and you say, Jesus, I have never even considered this before, but I want to turn around, and for the first time ever, I want to follow you, Jesus. Start showing me what that looks like. But then as you grow, you may find other places, other moments, things that that maybe you've done for years that hadn't come to your attention. And he says, now let's work on this one. Oh man, I was hoping that was all of them. (laughs) But you get to turn because you know he's been faithful to this before. Hey, you ready for like total honesty? I had to do this this morning because I deal with anxiety and God has been working on my heart with that. And, And recently I've had to come to terms with the fact that anxiety is not just like a thing I do. I think anxiety has been sinful in my life because it it belies a mistrust in the God who gives me promises that I know are true. And as recently as this morning, I'm praying through this passage and saying, if I have repented of the anxiety that shows me that I'm not trusting him, then what, what should I do differently? And I just used words that my wife gave me last night to trust his promises because they're true. And so I'm writing out verses that I know what his promises are. Because every time that anxiety faces me, every time that anxiety hits me, every time that anger comes in, I want to turn away. Repent from that anew. Leave that behind. Follow him. Bear fruit worthy of that repentance. You know, I don't know what that looks like for you. But I know that in the next couple of weeks... You're going to spend time probably with a few people that are really fun to spend time with. (laughs) But maybe a few people that are really exciting to spend time with. But maybe a few people that it's kind of hard to spend time with. I know that's one of the places in my life that can trigger me. And so I, I like to pray ahead. God, I'm going into some situations. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who's going to say something. I don't know who's going to fly out. How can I bear fruit worthy of my repentance at Thanksgiving dinner? 
through the holidays, when things get as stressful as possible. And you know what? Maybe for you, it's a chance to look ahead and say, what shall I do? Maybe it's forgiveness to somebody who feels hard to forgive. Maybe it's patience with somebody who's really hard to stand. You know, maybe it's generosity. You know, one of John's big examples, hey, if you got two tunics, give one away. You got extra food, share that with somebody. And this time of year, this is the time of year where like anybody and everybody is telling you thousands of different ways to be generous, right? Like that's good all the time, but at the end of the year, it goes into like hyper mode. And, and I know that we can get a little bit of overkill from that. But I think that's really powerful because all of these things he gives us are to turn out outward. Like stop thinking about myself and think about others. And I did want to share with you just one opportunity that we have right here in our Horizon community to be generous this season that for us could be the fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's something called the giving tree. You probably saw it when you came in the last couple weeks, right in the back of the atrium, big, beautiful, lit up tree. I'm excited that that tree is up before Thanksgiving. Isn't that cool? (laughs) That's like, at our house, the tree is usually up by like May, so that we're ready for Christmas. So when we get to see the Christmas tree back there, that's beautiful. And really what that is, is that each of the pieces of paper that's hanging on that tree represents a child or a family who, through your generosity, can have a blessed Christmas in the name of Jesus Christ. So if you've been thinking about ways that you could be generous, I'd encourage you, just, just stop by that tree and maybe take one of those names or one of those families as an opportunity, not just to show generosity, but to point people to Jesus. See, that's what John was here to do, to prepare people for Jesus and to point people to him. And we get to do that too. In fact, if you look at the next few verses, see how John does that himself. It says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, Right? This is how amazing his teaching is, how dynamic he is. They say, this actually might be the guy. Look at what he says. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, John's response is that when people look at him, he wants them to see Jesus. It's like that guy in the mall. You've seen that guy, right? He's staring at, you don't know what he's looking at. But when you see him staring, you try to see what he sees. That's what John wants us to do. That when people see us, they see us looking at Jesus. And it redirects their attention to him. That when we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, those moments, people say, that's different. What is that? Jesus. Interesting. And we have opportunities to point people to him. See, John says that he is not worthy, but I don't think that's self-deprecation. I think that's John glorifying the one who is to come. The one who, though we are unworthy, He counts us worthy. That he purifies us with his fire. That he burns away the things that we need to repent of, that we want to leave behind. And he empowers us by his spirit. 
I'm telling you, that is the only way that I get over my anger. That's the only way that I'm going to beat anxiety is if it is God in me. I, I don't do that myself and then come to him and say, God, I did it. I'm ready for you. I say, God, I can't do it. So I'm ready for you. My heart is prepared. Do your work. Because I think we all probably want to be the wheat that he gathers in, right? We want that to be our response. Not everybody had that response. You see in the last verses of this passage that with many other exhortations, he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. The picture you see is of Macarius, the mountaintop prison that John was shut up in because Herod's heart was not prepared. Herod decided to hunker down instead of repent. But I'll bet we want to respond a little bit differently, don't we? So let me encourage you this way this morning and as you go into this week and in the days to come, prepare for Christ. However painful it might seem, Remember that there is joy in repentance. Prepare for Christ in your own heart and point others to Christ by bearing fruit. Wherever you need to change direction, whatever it is that God might be working in your life, remember that it's by his grace, by his mercy, he wants to lead you forward that you would know the joy of the fruit that comes from following him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we just come before you humbly. Lord, we know that you are serious about sin, and we know that it is hard for us to own up to that sometimes. But God, I thank you for the ways that you bring joy out of our repentance, that you bring healing out of our hurt. God, that you remind us that it's actually possible for sin to be taken away, that the things we even sang this morning about the truth of Jesus Christ who fights our battles, who took the punishment that peace might be on us. God, I pray that even in this season, as we give thanks to you, as we thank you for your son, as we thank you for his death, as we thank you for his resurrection, that we might know the joy of bearing that fruit. God, we ask all of this in your holy name, in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being here this week. Have a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you back next week.